Every Sunday is a good Sunday, but it's great when we get to hear testimonies of the Lord's grace in, in our lives and the, the lives of those people who just shared their testimonies and see the waters of baptism stirred. That's what the Lord has called us to do, to be a light to the world, to share the gospel, and those who believe to be baptized in His name and join the body of believers who worship Him. Well, as a body, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, and believe it or not, we're going to cover two full chapters, and we are in the home stretch of the book of Acts. Um, uh, I've calculated it'll be four or five more sermons max, and we'll be finished, um, because really, verses or chapter 21 to the very end of Acts, chapter 28, is one story. Um, it's not broken up like we've seen before with various stories, maybe taking up a whole chapter or a portion of a chapter. Really, from this point forward, we're seeing Paul on a journey to go to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem to take the gospel to Rome. And actually, we're going to cover the last 25% of this book that is taking us uh, about 32 sermons, and we're going to do the other 25 in five sermons. So uh, that's, that's the plan. And really what we, we get, gain here is that this is the climactic portion of the book. This is the point where everything is coming to a culmination. And as you may recall, we could summarize the book of Acts as Christ's kingdom plan. And we saw this all the way in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus, before his ascension, gave his final orders to the disciples and we read in, in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, and you just listen to me as I read it, that when the disciples had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will, receive the po- you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here it is, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And really, you could follow the book of Acts through that division, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, end of the earth. And we're moving to the end of the earth. That's where we're going. Rome isn't necessarily the ends of the earth, but at this juncture in history, Rome was the capital of the imperial world. To set up ministry there would result in propelling the gospel anywhere else. It was the most significant city in the world, it would be likened to reaching and taking the gospel for the first time to New York City. So much influence, so much is centered there. The world culminates there and everything is dispersed. Rome was equivalent of that. And so Paul is going and striving to take the gospel to Rome. He actually even wants to go further. He wants to go to Spain, but at this point in Acts, we only know about the Rome And there he would want to establish a church and continuing to preach the gospel. And really the story will end, but it will just begin. As we get to the end of Acts chapter 28, where the kingdom will continue to expand as the gospel is preached and more and more congregations are established. And they follow in similar pattern what we have seen throughout this entire book. With this kingdom plan in mind, the church is to carry out God's purposes We're to see the proclamation of the gospel as our primary calling and forming our way of life. 
Another way to see it or think about it is that as followers of Christ, we just heard testimony after testimony, six of them, I am following Christ. And if you too have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, you too identify as a follower. Well, what does that mean? It means to walk in his footsteps, submitting to the will of the Father. And a will that will bring him ultimate glory and a will that desires the salvation of all men. In the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly calls people to follow him. Come, follow me. You might think of of the disciples who are on their fishing boats. He says, come, follow me. They drop their nets and they follow him. However, this following it doesn't, isn't just free. It comes with a cost. It comes with a price. And Jesus mentions this in Matthew 16, 21. You can turn there or you can again just listen to me. Jesus from that time began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You might remember this story. Peter then responds Took him, took him to the side and rebuked Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. You see what Peter's doing? Jesus is saying, hey, this is the path that I'm on. It's a path to Jerusalem, it's a path to the cross. And Peter says, no, that is not the path we're going. And you certainly are not going on that path. And so he rebukes him, but Jesus has even a, a further rebuke for Peter. He turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. Wow, I've never said that to any of you. Hopefully I don't have to. You are a hindrance to me, Jesus says. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus then told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with the angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. What we learn in this passage is that to follow Jesus means that it is the end of ourselves. Just as Christ's journey led him to the cross, so will ours. And as we see here, it took Peter some time to understand this lesson. But as we come to Acts, Luke is going to pick up this principle. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? And in fact, this whole narrative of Paul journeying to Jerusalem and his experience there is very similar Jesus' journey. And the reason that Luke kind of fashions this story and, and highlights parallels between Paul and Jesus is because he's presenting Paul as a model disciple. That Paul is showing us this is what it looks like to fall in the footsteps of Jesus. And just as Jesus says, if the world hated you, they'll hate, or they hate me, they'll hate you. And they'll treat you the way they treated me. We read from Luke earlier, Pastor Jamin did, and and that trial scene of how uh, people were misrepresenting Jesus and saying that he is leading people astray. But yet the court system comes up and says, we find no guilt in this man. Well, we're going to find the exact same thing happens with Paul. Therefore, this morning, I want us to see that walking in the footsteps of Christ requires that we come 
to a place where we can say, let the will of the Lord be done. That we can say along with Jesus as he was in the garden, contemplating his path of fulfilling the will of God, and he said, not my will, but your will be done. And this comes in Acts chapter 21. Paul is on a journey, and you can see this in in the beginning verses 1 through 4. He's he's on a a ship, and he is traveling away from Ephesus, where we were last Sunday. And he arrives in the city of Tyre, verse 3. And having sought out disciples, he stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. What? That, that sounds odd. We get a prophecy, and that's really the first point, the prophecy. We see a prophecy where these believers entire, they say through the Spirit, Paul is not to go to Jerusalem. Now, you should be scratching your head because last Sunday we saw in chapter 20, verses 22 through 23, Paul said this. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And now you got these disciples who are prophesying, they're speaking the word of the Lord, and they say, through the Spirit, Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. Well, let's keep that question in mind, and hopefully we can answer it here in just a minute. We jump down to verse 9. Paul moves on, and he arrives in Caesarea, and he enters the house of Philip. We remember Philip. He, he was an evangelist. He's one of the first seven. Uh, we, we often call them the, the first seven deacons. Philip there, the evangelist, is bringing Paul and his companions, Luke is with them at this time, into this home. And, and we notice that he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So here this theme of prophecy is happening again. This, Luke is trying to show, hey, Luke, as Jesus, or excuse me, as Paul is going further uh, and closer to Jerusalem, the Spirit is testifying and testifying through prophets in the churches. And then we come to verse... 9 or 10, and they're staying there for many days, and a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound him his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So now we're getting a little bit of clarity What was the Holy Spirit saying to these prophets in Tyre? What was the Holy Spirit probably saying through Philip's daughters? And now, what is Agabus saying? The Holy Spirit testifies that imprisonment awaits you. That sounds exactly like what Paul said. Holy Spirit testifies to me that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Some people have taught from this passage that these prophets were mistaken, that somehow prophecy can be fallible. They've tried to do this because they want to uh, say, hey, this exact type of thing happens today. And if you're going to say that, you've got to have fallible prophecy because you've got fallible prophets all the time, right? I'm a prophet of the Lord, and they say things, and then it doesn't happen, right? 
or it could be other types of revelation. But Luke is not presenting this as false prophecy. It's the right prophecy. They're just wrongly understanding what to do with it. They don't know what to do with this information. I've also heard pastors kind of flip it the other way. It's right prophecy, right interpretation, just Paul refuses to listen to the Holy Spirit. And he's just stubborn. And Paul, if he would just listen, all these troubles wouldn't happen to him. Well, that's not true either. We find out what Luke wants us to see. It's, it's similar to what Peter had to deal with with Jesus. Here's the will of the Lord. It wasn't imprisonment. It was a cross. And Peter says, nope, that must not be God's will. And what did Jesus say to him? You set your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. You don't understand what God is doing. And that's exactly what Paul has to do. We don't get all the details, but we, it, by the end, we see that they understand. Verse 12, when they heard this, the people urged him not to go to Jerusalem, but Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. And Paul answers, calmer way than Jesus. He didn't say, get behind me, Satan. But Paul is a pastor. He's, he's saying, you're breaking my heart. I appreciate the love that you're expressing towards me. But he goes on, for I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased... And we said, let the will of the Lord be done. Obviously, he had to continue to persuade them, change, help them understand. And maybe they, they don't fully grasp it, but at the end of the day, they come to this conclusion, let the will of the Lord be done. So Agabus comes and he says, you're going to be handed over by the Jews. He takes off Paul's belt and binds him. And he says, you're going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And, and often where people want to say, oh, this prophecy is not wrong, is because when you, we read the rest, his belt's not taken off, and he's not literally bound like that. And the Jews aren't the ones who actually put him in chains. It's the Romans. And, and they, they press the details to a woodenness that actually it, it, it doesn't come to fruition, exactly like Agabus says. But the problem with that is that if you look in the Old Testament, this is how prophets worked. They would use... Uh, clothing and items to illustrate what the prophetic message was. In fact, in 1 Kings 11, let me just read you what one of the prophets here does to Jeroboam. At that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ajeha, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now, Ajeha had dressed himself in a new garment. He gets new garments out to try to do something here, to show a message. And two of them were alone in the open country. And he laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. So he's got this nice new garment. And he goes to the king and he just starts tearing his garment. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give, it, give you 10 tribes. The garment is an illustration. It's not the prophecy. 
it's to illustrate what is going to happen to you. And what happens to Paul by the end of this? He's bound and imprisoned, exactly like Agabus said. He was seized by the Jews, handed over to the Gentiles, bound and imprisoned. So, if you've read elsewhere, it says otherwise, that's my case, why you should believe the prophecy is not infallible, or it is infallible, it's not fallible. So look at their response. They, they say, you're not going to go to Jerusalem, no way. They're like Peter, and, and you, we should be thinking, Paul is being cast on the journey to Jerusalem just like Jesus was. And Jesus is on the way, and his disciples are saying, no, no, no. But they don't understand the will of God. And Paul has to help them, and, and, and we see this cry in verse 14 that they arrive at, let the will of the Lord be done. See, Paul is a model disciple, and, he, and, and Paul echoes the heart of the Christian here. Now, you might not be, and most of you won't be missionaries, pastors, and, and none of you are going to be apostles like Paul. But Paul's confession is something to emulate. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought, hey, if need be, I would give my life for Christ? That it might not be ask of me. Here in America, we, we probably don't think of it like that. Most Christians throughout the centuries, and even I would say most Christians in the world today, have to think about this. Following Jesus, being baptized, may cost you your life. And this is an important message for the church because, and I think especially for us, and I just think this is part of being human, we don't want to go down a path that says death. Yet that's the path that Christ was on. And we're little Christs. And so we, we look at it with our physical eyes and we say, that looks like hard. That must not be God's will for my life. But Luke through Paul is illustrating what it looks like to be faithful. And if it costs us our lives, then it costs us our lives. Now most of us likely will not have to be faced with that least if the climate stays the same way it is right now. But it is a question that as Christians we must come to grips with, that we can say in every facet of our life, let the will of the Lord be done. We come in our passage in verse 17, Paul now arrives in Jerusalem and we, and we now see the problem. So we've seen the prophecy, now we're going to see the problem. The problem that Paul is going to face in Jerusalem. And in verses 17 through 26, we read of what happens. Paul comes to Jerusalem, and we see in verse 17, the brothers received us gladly. That's Paul, Luke, and, and probably some other companions. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So he's, he's, he's in Jerusalem. The church is receiving him. It looks like it's probably a small group. And then on the next day, they meet with the pastors, James and the other elders, and they greet them, and they, they relate things. Paul, uh, he, he recounts, uh, tells about all the things that God has done through him amongst the Gentiles. And in verse 20, we see that they glorified God in light of these things. So it's kind of like a little mission report. Paul's back, and he is sharing what God has done. The elders, they want to also share with Paul what God has done. 
And they say, you know, Paul, we've heard lots of great things have happened, but we want you to know thousands of people have believed in Christ here in Jerusalem as well. But they have this detail to add, verse 20. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? Okay, well, it started off good. Day one was good. Everybody's receiving Paul. Looks like maybe everything's going to go well in Jerusalem. But the elders and the pastors already know, hey, Paul, there is a problem. People have a misconception about your ministry. They think that you are telling people to forsake, basically, the Old Testament. That that Jews are to stop being Jews. What are we to do, Paul? Because there are thousands of people who are zealous for the law. They're zealous for Moses. They're they're zealous for the Old Testament. This isn't going to go well. And so verse 23, they say, do therefore what we tell you. We've got a plan. Okay, Paul? We've got a plan. And basically, they say, you need to take four men, verse 24, and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Why, why would that be a good plan? Hey, here's four guys. Pay for them to get a haircut at Brandon Hill's Barbershop. That's, that's not what they're saying. These men often, it looks as if they've taken a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow, you think of Samson. He was to have his hair grow, and he was not to cut it. It was a vow, um, and at the end of the vow, you could shave your head. Um, Same thing probably with John the Baptist. And and we've actually seen Paul do this elsewhere. It was a custom uh, among Jews to to say, Lord, I am going forward and maybe in a dangerous circumstance or I'm I'm calling upon you. It would be kind of like a fast of some sort. And I'm not going to shave my head until I fulfill my obligation to you, my desire to serve you. And at the end of that, you'd shave your head and you'd go through purification. And they say, Paul, why don't you pay for them to go through those things. And everybody will see that you're supportive of the things of Jewish customs, and then they will relieve their concerns and say, oh, we must have misunderstood. And so Paul does just that. Verse 26, then Paul took the men the next day. He purified himself along with them. Why would he have done that? Because he's going to go into the temple. And if you're having done a lot of work among the Gentiles... There were rules in the law that say you must wash yourself, go through purifying, because Gentiles weren't allowed to enter the temple. And so Paul was going through these things willingly so that everyone would know these are misconceptions. Paul is not against the Old Testament. It wasn't called the Old Testament at that time, but that's just to help us understand. But if you might be thinking, isn't this different than what the Jerusalem pastor said earlier in Acts chapter 12 when, when, uh, when they had the Jerusalem council and, and they talked about, or Acts chapter 15, and they, they had stipulations that, hey, the, the law is no longer in power. People don't have to obey the law. Well, they say that in verse 25. 
But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, to blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. So we haven't changed the things that we've said earlier, Paul. And this is what Paul would say to the Corinthians. I have become Jew to reach the Jews. Become a Gentile to reach the Gentiles. Paul's able to honor the customs and, and things not to offend people. And so Paul's doing the right thing. Paul is knowing that trouble is coming, but he doesn't just say, well, guys, you don't understand. The Holy Spirit testifies to me that imprisonment and afflictions await me. What's the use? And here we're seeing how Paul submits to the will of God doesn't mean that he somehow doesn't do the right thing. Paul's willing to go through these things, submit himself to the pastors and say, hey, this is how I think you'll be best received. Paul's able to do what is right while also saying, let the will of the Lord be done. And, and this is where I would encourage us. You know, the Bible tells us that people will mock us, despise us, say evil things against us. But that doesn't give us the right to say, well, so what? I'm not going to try to befriend them. That, or, or so what? You know, it's all going to be this way anyway, so I don't have to be kind. I don't have to speak kind of them. I don't have to try to reach them because the, the, God already told us that this thing is, is, we're not going to be received, so why even try? But we don't see that with Paul. See, Paul, and, and this is among believers at this, at this point, willing to sacrifice his own rights willing to serve others for the sake of them, yet knowing I'm under the will of God and whatever happens, happens. See, as believers, we need to understand our first calling is to be faithful and we leave the results up to the Lord. Whatever happens to us really is outside of our control. How people think of us, how they might misconceive us. We want to do everything in our power that the stumbling block would not be in us. But if they reject the gospel, that, that, is, not, that is not our fault. So we see here what it looks like. Even when you begin to see a problem, hey, I still am remaining faithful. So let's see the fulfillment of this prophecy. So we've seen the, the prophecy, the problem, now the fulfillment in verse 27. And when the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. There it is. The Jews will seize you. Here they are seizing Paul. Now I want to stop here. Paul's done what is right. And it looks as if it appeased the thousands of Jews who believed in Jerusalem. It's another group, unforeseen. Jews from Asia who end up causing the trouble. Now let me ask you, have you ever done things right? No, there's a tension, maybe at work, maybe in your home. You say, all right, I'm going to go above and beyond, and I'm going to do what's right to ease tensions. I will just swallow my pride and do this. And you go through, and the thing blows up in your face anyway. Have you ever had that happen? That's what's happening to Paul. I'm being faithful, and... This other group who we didn't account for comes in and, and, and stirs up trouble. And I want you to see, okay, Lord, you said this would happen. 
And I want us to watch Paul. How does he respond when he's doing things faithfully? He's honoring the Lord. He's honoring others. He's loving others. He's putting others before himself. And yet, his words are still being twisted. He's still being misrepresented. So there's Jews from Asia. These are probably Jews from Ephesus. If you remember, Paul had a lot of trouble in Ephesus. He came in and it was Demetrius, the silversmith, who made idols for people. And they caused a riot. And then the Jews were like, hey, um, he's not with us. Uh, We'll join with you in hating him. And he would have tons and tons of trouble. Well, it's Pentecost. It's a feast time. And people have come to Jerusalem from all over the world. Now there's Jews from Ephesus in town. And seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd, verse 27, crying out, men of Israel, help! This man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Oh, okay, there's the accusation. You know the man you've heard of? Well, we've seen him. Everywhere, including in Ephesus, he speaks ill of this people. He speaks ill of the book of the law. He speaks ill of this temple. Moreover, now they've added to this. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. What? He brought in four Jews who shaved their head and were through the purification rites. He did everything right. What did they do? Verse 29, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. So apparently he's got another brother who's joined him on the team who came with him from Ephesus, and they've seen him around, and I don't know what happened. Maybe they were being malicious. Maybe they're lying. He took Trophimus into the temple. Or maybe they were at a distance, and they saw four people, and they said, we've seen Paul walking around with all kinds of people, and we know he's with Trophimus. He must have broken the law and brought this Gentile in here. And everything explodes. Out of Paul's control. So verse 30, then they all, the city was stirred up, and people ran together. They seized Paul, according to Agabus, here's the fulfillment, and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. One interesting point here about Greeks or Gentiles entering the temple. Archaeologists have found evidence of signs that would have been placed on these gates that they shut on Paul. Signs that forbid Gentiles to enter. And and here's what one reads. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for what follows. Death. That was on the sign. Hey, we're welcome of all. No, not really. So Paul is now accused of this, and they seized him, verse 30. Verse 31, and as they were seeking to kill him. So Paul was prepared to die. It looks like he is. But in just that moment, look at God's sovereignty here. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. Have you ever been to a sporting event where a fight breaks out? You ever been to one? Johnny, you been in one? No. (laughs) Um, What happens? There's this scuttle, and then all the security guys all come. They get word, and they come, and they put into it, and they drag people off. That's what happens. 
except it wasn't a sporting event. It's in town. So they take Paul. There's all in confusion. I said I was going to cover two chapters. Mm. Um, And at once, when they saw the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. So the Roman soldiers come in. He's now handed over to the Gentiles, just like Agabus said. But it actually preserves his life. Preserves his life. And they begin asking, what has this man done? And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some in another. And the, the tribune, the soldiers, they could not learn the facts because of the uproar. And he ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence. Get that picture. Paul's been beaten so badly. The violence is so much, the soldiers have had to sweep in, put him on their back, and carry him up the steps into the barracks. I thought that was the mighty Apostle Paul. Verse 35, and when they had come up the steps, the soldiers had carried him because of the violence. The mob of the people followed, crying out, just as Jesus was, they cried out when Jesus was on trial, away with him. Jesus' trial, away with this one, give us Barabbas. Away with this one. Verse 37, we begin Paul's defense, though. And I want you to see how he responds. I want you to notice his composure. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? Notice, this is what it looks like to trust in the will of the Lord even when things are going bad. Paul's still polite. He's still under composure. He's diplomatic. I think sometimes when we're wronged, we say, oh, no, you didn't. I'm going to buck up and I'll I'll fight back. That's not what Paul does. Hey, may I say something? And the soldier says, do you know Greek? Are you, and now he jumps to new conclusions. Are you not the Egyptian who then recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Uh, No, you got the wrong guy. (laughs) There was an Egyptian terrorist at this time who had led a group to try to assassinate people in town. They were known as those with the daggers. And they would come in, and they would stab people, and they'd go off. And Felix had to take an army and go and run them out, and their leader had gone missing. And they thought, oh, the soldiers, they don't, they don't know all these things with the Jews. They just know that there was a terrorist from Egypt who spoke Greek. And they're thinking, here's this guy stirring up trouble. Maybe this is him. So another misconception Come on, Paul can't get a break. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. When he had been given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them. Now in the Hebrew language, or Aramaic, it could be either Hebrew or Aramaic, So now, he addresses the people in a way that they would listen. These are the people who just tried to kill him. I don't know about you, but my first thought would be like, forget them, get me out of here. But Paul says, let me me address them. I, I understand them. 
I'm one of them. In the rest of chapter 22, what we're going to see is, is Paul lays out his testimony to them. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to highlight just how he responds to them. He goes on, verse 3, and he says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of, 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 of Sicilia, uh, brought up this city, educated at the feet of Gamilia, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God all as all of you are this day. I know who you are because I was one of you. That should be ringing in our ear. Oh, when we see people lash out against us, treat us ill, uh, uh, have misconceptions of us. You know what? I was, I was like you. You might not patronize them like that, but you, you could be sympathetic. You know, I used to jump to conclusions about people too before I understood the scriptures before I'd met Christ. He goes on, he says, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Here's the irony here. Paul, who in a mob just like this oversaw Stephen's death, who was accused of the same thing. He speaks ill of this people, ill of this law, and ill of this temple, which was not true. Now the same thing's happening to Paul. And Paul oversaw his murder. You see it in verse uh, 20. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over him with garments of those who killed him. Paul says, I, I've been there. I, I, I'm a sinner too. He doesn't say it quite like that, but that's the point. I, I understand what you're doing. But let me tell you, I met Jesus, verse 6. I was on the road to Damascus carrying out the very same things that you're wanting to do, misconceiving who these people are, trying to kill them and drag them back to put them in jail. But I met the risen Savior. I met the righteous one, the Messiah, on the road. And you might say, yeah, that's your story, Paul. Who's going to believe you? Well, he says, verse 12, and one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law. He's very perceptive. He describes he, a devout man according to the law, well spoken by all the Jews who lived there in Damascus. You can go check it out. A faithful Jew will vouch for me. Came to me, standing by me, and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. In verse 16, he says, And now why do you wait, rise, and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name? I became a Christian, Paul says. He talks about a time when he came back to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple. Why does he make that note? Because I am not against Judaism. I've believed in the true Messiah who I'm calling you to believe. We are the true Jews. That's what he, Paul is saying. We're the ones who are trying to follow the true way of Moses. We do not speak ill of these things. We are the fulfillment of these things. And he says, and Jesus told me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that was it. Up to this word, verse 22, they listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Paul was gracious with them. He appealed to them. He did not mock or ridicule them. He was just being faithful. But he's faithful, and he's saying, Let the will of the Lord be done. And as they were shouting, verse 23, and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought in the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. Oh no, it's getting worse. Flogging. 
This is exactly what happened to Jesus. Away with him, away with him. Pilate says, all right, let's have him flogged. And maybe that'll be enough punishment and they'll be satisfied we can release him. That's exactly what they're going to do to Paul. And they're thinking, we can beat it out of him. Find out why are they shouting all this against him. But then Paul, he doesn't lose his cool. He's willing to submit himself under the will of the Lord. And, he, and as they stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Like, I'll just give you a little, I know the law. You might not know this, I'm a Roman citizen as well. <laughs> what I want you to see is God's protection of Paul actually goes all the way back from his upbringing. All, the, all his life has prepared him for this moment, right? I can speak to these people because I am these people. I'm being handed over to these people, but God has prepared me for that moment so that I can talk to them. Now, don't get the idea, oh, that God is now going to spare your life from every time we've seen people die. Stephen was one of them. But the Lord will not let us be killed until his will is done. And so that's where we find the boldness that Paul has. We can have the composure. We can move forward submitting and being faithful because we know that as long as the Lord needs us, he'll keep us around. And so there's all this confusion. The tribune comes in verse 27 and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Paul says, Yes. The tribune answered him and said, I bought this citizenship. I guess he pulled out his wallet. I bought this citizenship with a large sum. Paul says, Well, I got one better. I'm a citizen by birth. Wow. What's interesting, we don't know this tribune's name until next week. Chapter 23, verse 26, Claudius Lysias is his name. The ex... He's, he works directly under Governor Felix. But as we learn about this man, he learns more about Paul. And what we're seeing is God in his sovereignty brought Paul through this um, time with the Jews who have seized him, beat him, tried to kill him, rescued him, being handed over to the Romans so that now he could meet this one soldier who's now going to bring him to Felix, who's then going to bring him to Agrippa, who's then going to take him to Caesar. The Lord's in control, even in the midst of the chaos. And here's where I want to encourage us as we close. We don't have prophets coming in here, telling us here's exactly what's going to happen to you when you go to work tomorrow. But we have the prophetic word given to us. God has given us instructions that it is His will to make the gospel known to the ends of the earth. He's given us direction. And he's told us, here's what you can expect will happen when you do this. And we can follow Paul's example in our relationships. Hey, they might not work out the way we thought. Band, if you want to come up and get ready to play, we can. Your relationships might not work the way that you thought. Work isn't going the way you thought. Your aspirations and your dreams aren't working out the way you thought. Parenting's not going as easily as you thought. Your health and circumstances aren't as hunky-dory as you thought they would be. But here's where you and I can rest in the will of the Lord. Is that He is working all these things for our ultimate good, our glorification, and for His purposes. 
And just like Paul was led to the moment where he could give testimony, I would offer that your life, every time these things happen and you're faithful and you submit yourself to the will of the Lord, you're able to give testimony through your life and through your words and the way you respond. We're going to see what goes on with the rest of the story because that's really all one story here on out. Next week we'll look at another two chapters and how Paul is being carried along to Rome. And it's not going to get any easier. But we're going to see what it looks like to remain faithful in the midst of the storm. Okay? Why don't we stand? And Jamin and the band will lead us in a closing song.